Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Searching for It. As I mentioned a little while ago, I'm going to be releasing an episode on the first Monday of every month, but every now and then, when I get ahead of schedule, I'll try and drop an extra episode in here and there. And I thought today's episode would be a really cool bonus one, as it's the first time I've had a guest come on the show, which is something I'm really excited about. So today, I've got Liam Ward joining me, where we'll be going way back to the first episode of this podcast, and discussing the philosopher Albert Camus. Liam and I have been friends going back to university, but it wasn't until I told Liam earlier this year about my plans to begin this podcast and record the first episode on Camus that he told me he'd actually been getting really into Camus himself recently. Liam's always been into philosophy and existentialism and all that kind of stuff, but around about the same time that I'd been reading Camus, Liam had been doing the same thing and had even written an essay on the links between the myth of Sisyphus, which is Camus' essay that goes over the kind of things we looked at in the first episode, and another one of Camus' books, The Outsider. So I thought this would be a really good opportunity to kind of flesh out Camus' ideas on the absurd that we looked at in the first episode a bit more, but also to get Liam's thoughts on how the outsider can also help us make sense of this absurd reality in which we all live, and how this can maybe offer us some useful guidance for the real world. For those of you who are listening to Searching for It for the first time, or haven't listened to the first episode, I'd really recommend giving it a listen first, as it'll add a bit of context to the kind of things we'll be discussing in this episode. But if not, that's fine. I've gone back and added a couple of little extra interjections here and there, just to make some points a bit more clear, as Camus can get a bit abstract at times. But for now, here's today's episode. So welcome to Searching for Illium. Glad to be here, Lewis. Thanks, thanks for having me. That's all right. So do you want to begin by telling any listeners a bit about what you do, your background, what got you interested in Camus? Right, so um, uh, I, I went to university with you. We, we lived with each other for three years. Obviously, I was exposed to quite a lot of philosophy and ideas uh, from people like Camus and Sartre and all, all those existentialist thinkers through, yeah. through some of your long and very, very long-winded discussions about him yeah, with some of our other housemates. Yeah. yeah, there have been a few philosophical discussions like that. Uh, obviously, I'm not a philosophy student myself. I come from a psychology background, studied yeah. that at uni, and I'm currently working as a healthcare assistant on an eating disorders ward in a psychiatric hospital. So that's what I do. Ah, oh, fantastic. I didn't know you'd uh, got into that now, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working in a clinical setting now. So, um, yeah, hope, hoping to uh, get into, um, like, counselling or psychotherapy down the line. So Brilliant. That's, yeah, that's where I'm headed. Brilliant. Yeah. So what is it about Kandu that kind of speaks to you in particular? I think there's, there's a lot about his ideas that resonate with me, particularly the idea of being aware of your struggle and accepting it and dealing it head on rather than eluding it and trying to sidestep it. Okay. I think that in order to deal with any struggle effectively, um, you need to be conscious of it and then you can move forward from there, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Obviously with Camus, he's got quite a specific definition of a struggle. He's got a yes. certain kind of thing he's working with there. Do you yeah. want to say a little bit about that and your thoughts on that? So, so yeah, so for him, the, the ultimate struggle of man is dealing with the absurd and, well, as, as he puts it, the ultimate struggle is, is being able to figure out whether life is worth the effort, basically. He opens the essay saying the most important philosophical question is whether or not one should commit suicide or not, basically. And he's, he's asking, you know, is, is the juice worth the squeeze, basically? Yeah, yeah. Is, is life worth it? Yeah. 
because it is an absurd experience. And what he means by that is, obviously, there's a divorce between man's ideal for unity and understanding and to make sense of the world around him and the inherent meaninglessness and chaos of the universe. So I just wanted to jump in at this point just to offer a little bit of a recap of what we looked at in the first episode and also to flesh out what we're talking about with this concept of the absurd and this divorce that Liam talks about between man's desire for understanding on the one hand and and also the inherent meaninglessness of the world. So as Liam says, there's a particular struggle that Camus concerned with in the myth of Sisyphus and this is the struggle that man faces when man confronts the absurd. Now, firstly, what Camus means by the absurd is, I think, fairly straightforward. You've got two things kind of going on here. First of all, people have a desire to understand the universe, the way it works, why the universe is the way it is. People want to understand life, to understand why they're here, their kind of purpose. Now, to clarify, Camus isn't necessarily saying that there is no meaning to our lives. He's a bit more cautious than that. He's a bit more agnostic, if you like. Camus basically says that we can't know what the fundamental meaning of our lives is. So maybe Christians are right and we were created by God and we should worship him. Maybe certain ethicists are right and there's one objectively correct way in which we should be living our lives. But ultimately we don't know. So the absurd that we're talking about, Camus' notion of the absurd, is essentially this contradiction, this divorce between on the one hand our desire for meaning and on the other hand the universe's refusal to give us that meaning. So that's the basic problem that Camus is trying to overcome in the myth of Sisyphus. I mean, for Camus, technically he's not going to solve the absurd, and that's because the meaning of our lives is essentially undiscoverable, whether he likes it or not. But what Camus wants to do is to find out what we as people, situated in the real world, should do about this. There are three solutions that Camus considers, three things that he thinks we can do about the absurd. First of all, as Liam alluded to, there's the option of physical suicide, of killing ourselves, and that's one way we could escape the absurd. Or alternatively, we could also commit what Camus calls philosophical suicide, which doesn't involve actually killing ourselves, but what it does do is committing ourselves to some way of life or to some system of beliefs that ascribes a kind of objective meaning to our lives. And this could be something like religion, but it could also be any kind of non-religious philosophy that tries to say, this is what life's all about, and this is how we should live it. But, and this is what we look at in a lot more depth in the first episode, Camus doesn't think that either of these are very good responses. For him, physical suicide doesn't actually do anything about the fundamentally absurd nature of the universe and our relationship with it. We still have no meaning. Whereas philosophical suicide is, for Camus, it's inauthentic. And again, it doesn't actually solve the problem of the absurd. I think it's more like the philosophical equivalent of sticking your head in the sand. So instead, and that's what we'll look at now, in response to the problem of the absurd, the problem of the lack of meaning to our lives, Camus presents his solution, which is revolt, and that's what we'll come on to look at now. So Camus does give um, his own response to the absurd um, in The Myth of Sisyphus. Do you want to talk about your understanding of, of how Camus wants us to, to tackle it, and through particularly the theme of revolt? Yes, yes. So obviously we've spoken about lucidity and being conscious of the absurd. That's the first step right. in dealing with it. And then for the actual attitude that he encourages us to adopt when approaching the absurd, that attitude is revolt. Yeah. And I feel like his 
his message and his way of informing us of that attitude is actually it's actually quite a simple one um despite like all the flowery language that he uses in the essay yeah like the the message is ultimately ultimately very simple and the his idea of revolt is ultimately to become the master of our own struggles so his message is to become the master of our own struggles and it's to simply do this by not being beaten basically right it's refuse it's refusing to give in that's that's all it is for me it's if if life gets you down then pick yourself back up and and carry on with it basically and i think i think you described it quite well in in your episode um on Camus, where you said it's it's kind of like making the best of a bad situation basically yeah. it's like a kid that's sent to the naughty step and they yeah. still you know they still pull faces and they still they still try and enjoy themselves despite that punishment basically okay yeah so i mean obviously on the one hand we you might want to say we have been defeated in that there is no meaning or purpose, but we refuse to actually accept that and to give the absurd that kind of victory. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of explaining it. Like, the, the defeat is inevitable. Like, life life is meaningless. We are all going to die someday. But it's once we become aware of those limitations and we start working within them, that's when we truly become liberated, according to Camus. Yeah, I, I do like that. Uh, I think if you're going to be authentic when talking about the absurd, at least in my opinion as a non-religious person, yeah, I do think you have to admit that there is nothing greater out there, so maybe revolt is the best we can do. The one problem I kind of have with Camus, though, particularly when reading The Myth of Sisyphus, is obviously at the end when Camus um, describes the analogy through that Myth of Sisyphus, which we looked at in the first episode, he ends, I think, with the sentence something like, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Mm. And I always find myself asking, why must we imagine Sisyphus happy? Because yeah, that's a good point. Because it uh, is it that satisfying? Yeah, Do why? you find it that satisfying an answer? Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine him rolling that boulder up that hill every day with like a yeah. big smile on his face. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think when Camus uses the word happy, he doesn't mean it in the immediate sense maybe like right. oh i'm having such a good time here he means happy as a more long-term enduring thing like a sense of fulfillment that i spoke about earlier yeah okay and do you find that enough then what Camus trying to tell us there that by revolting we reach that stage of enduring happiness that that is enough for us i mean for, for me personally that's that's the attitude that i i try to adopt in life yeah and and it works for me but it's it's hard to say. It really depends on the person, in my opinion, and it depends on the, the problems that that person is going through. I think for people who are in very traumatic situations where maybe they're being abused or like they're they're doing things where their lives are at risk, I think it's a bit rich to just say embrace the absurd, man. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't yeah. think that's very helpful for some people. But in in terms of people going through more common everyday struggles, I I think it's a good attitude. I think that draws upon an interesting distinction, actually, in that I'm not sure, maybe from a philosophical perspective, if it's the right question to ask, is it satisfying? Is the notion of revolt satisfying? Because at the end of the day, Camus thinks that's as close as we can get to the truth, and we're trying to, we're trying to find truth there, not just um, find something that's nice to believe in. But then I think you're also drawing a nice distinction there between, is it a philosophically sound argument? Maybe it is, yeah. Maybe the world is absurd. But equally... Uh, Obviously, Camus writing a philosophy here that he wants to be able pe- uh, people to be able to relate to on a day to day level. So yes. that's kind of a different question. There is it satisfying for people in everyday situations? 
obviously you're talking about people in maybe traumatic situations, those kind of things. It's not that helpful to just say, just become the master. Yeah. yeah, become the master of your own struggles. But <laughs> yeah. what kind of um, situations then do you think people might actually, in real life situations, rather than just philosophical speculating, be able to maybe apply this notion of revolt to their lives? I think it's helpful for people who are like struggling with the, the nine to five rat race, as it were, because that in itself is a very Sisyphean struggle, like going to your job um, almost every day, five days of the week, doing pretty much the same thing every day when you when you go to work. Yeah, It's very akin to rolling the boulder up the hill, like Sisyphus, basically. And I think I'm not saying people uh, should try to enjoy like that aspect of their lives, but what they should do is accept it at least, realise, you know, what whatever I do, life is probably going to be like this no matter what job I have. Um, like, once the novelty wears off, eventually it is just going to be me repeating the same thing day in and day out, doing the same thing. But once once you have awareness of that, you can kind of you can kind of look beyond that struggle and try and find things in life that you find enjoyable and fulfilling and you can you you can use those things to 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 bring you a sense of fulfillment so just just to use like myself as an example yeah. obviously i so i work in a hospital i work in a psychiatric hospital and there's not really a lot of modularity to what I do. I don't really have projects or anything to do at work right. because I work with patients. I work with people. The work is ongoing. It's it's continuous. So, you know, my my tasks and responsibilities every day I go into work uh, are the same, basically. There's yeah. not really a lot of variation in that. And I, I've accepted that. I'm, I'm fine with that. I realise that's part of what I do. But... I look, I look beyond my work to like bring myself satisfaction. And one of the main ways that I do bring myself satisfaction is, is through sports. You know, I, I love going swimming, cycling, running. Those things, they really, they really give me a sense of, of happiness in the way that I think Camus means it. So when, when I do those things, it's not an immediate sense of happiness because there is struggle involved in those things because... When, when you do any any kind of endurance sport, it's, you know, you're, you're testing yourself in yeah. a way. You're putting yourself through suffering to better yourself. So there is there is a sense of happiness and fulfilment there. But the happiness, it's like a long-term enduring happiness. It's more a sense of satisfaction rather than immediate joy, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. And would you say then that you, or yourself throwing yourself into those kind of fulfilling activities are your response to this kind of well maybe absurdness that you sometimes see in your life where you've got this kind of rec these recurring themes that you're doing the same thing every time but you're saying well hey this is my situation but I'm going to become the master of it and I'm going to do it do with it what I can yeah yeah exactly exactly it is it is like saying like this this is my situation but hey I'm going to try and get some enjoyment out of it basically exactly. make, make the best of a bad situation yeah so there's to play devil's advocate here um I hope I'm using this word correctly, quietism. Um, I've never quietism. used it or talked about it myself before, but I've read about it, and my understanding is I think it's to do with... Um, I think what quietism means is it's when an attitude or a belief leads you to kind of inertia, to actually not doing anything or changing your situation. So the way you might want to say that Camus' 
notion of revolt as a response to the absurd leads to quietism is a lot of it is about acceptance. Maybe you might want to say, actually, we should be trying to change the situation we're in when we're applying this to our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Obviously, this isn't going to work as a response to the absurd because we can't change the absurd. But maybe does that mean that we can't really apply the notion of revolt to things that we maybe could actually change the situation we're in in the first place? Um, I think people could interpret it that way. That's that's not how I interpret it. So the the way I think of it is there is there is acceptance, obviously, accepting the absurd and being conscious of it. But then I think that's where that's where the acceptance stops, basically. And after we accept the absurd, it's basically down to the down to the individual to take responsibility and become the own agent. Um, of mastering their struggles and dealing with the absurd. Yeah. So one of the main reasons that we chose to obviously have this discussion today is you thought, having read The Myth of Sisyphus and having listened to the first episode of this podcast as well, that there's much more that can be said about Camus than just his notion of revolt and response to the absurd that you find in The Myth of Sisyphus. He's also got a load of other really interesting novels, one of which I think you're particularly interested is, uh, in is The Outsider. Yes. Um, so should we kind of begin to exploring that and um well do you want to begin by talking about i think you had some thoughts about how these two pieces of work the myth of sisyphus and the outsider actually complement each other and can be read side by side yeah yeah i was saying to you that i think they work well as companion pieces because well interestingly they were both actually published in the same year and i think it, it kind of shows that they were that they were written in a in a similar time frame, because a lot of the ideas that Camus explores in the myth of Sisyphus, I think they're explored um, a lot more plainly in The Outsider um, through Mousseau and the, the struggles that he goes through in his life in the story. So to give the listener then who hasn't read The Outsider, which is a book I would definitely recommend to yes. anyone listening, yeah. um, anyone who's interested in, in this, maybe if we just, without... I mean, you can't really give spoilers, can you, to the outsider? Because the narrative's not what it's really about. But I guess a yeah. spoiler alert to anyone listening. Of course. Do you want to kind of give the listener an idea of what's going on in The Outsider? Okay. So, with with The Outsider, it's written from the first-person perspective of a man named Mousseau. Mousseau is a very, he's a very unique individual in the fact that he doesn't really, he doesn't really show his feelings much. When he's confronted with his mother's death, um, he largely shows indifference. Obviously, the book famously starts with, mother died today, or maybe it was yesterday, I'm not sure. Which is, I think, one of the best opening lines in literature. It really captivates you. Yeah, yeah, and I think it really sums up his personality quite well. Eventually, um, he's put on trial for a seemingly random act of violence that he commits on a beach where he shoots uh, an Arab man four times. And it is, it is a seemingly random act of violence as well. We're not quite sure if he meant to do it or if it was an accident. And in a way, I feel like that was, that was Camus' whole idea. It's, it's an absurd experience to confront the reader with. Because as, as readers and as people, we want some kind of meaning from, from the narrative and we want, we, want a, we want a sense of unity and a higher sense of meaning. And when he presents us with this seemingly random, unexplainable act, he is making us confront the absurd. Like, there is almost no explanation for why he does it. Um, oh, that's really I, interesting. So, I, yeah. 
Yeah, the, the book is kind of in the analogy with the absurd then. The book is the universe who's looking at us with indifference, refuses to give us this kind of meaning. Exactly, to refuses to give us an thing. answer. It just says, like, he he does this. Like, um, what what actually happens? Uh, the sun is blazing down on him at the yeah. beach and he almost recoils and it seems like perhaps accidentally squeezes the trigger of the gun, uh, shoots the Arab man, but then after that he shoots seemingly intentionally four more times yeah and uh yeah it's just it's a very contradictory action yeah yeah and i think it definitely embodies the absurd as as camus puts it as well but but anyway um bit bit of a segue there so he commits this this act of violence he kills this man he's put on trial for it um he's then condemned to death but not seemingly for the acts of violence that he commits, but for how he handled his life after the death of his mother. The fact that he ends up starting a casual relationship with this lady that used to work in his office. The fact that he basically just gets on with his life and enjoys it as he, as he did before. He's kind of condemned by people for that. And eventually he, he is executed. But before that happens, he does, he does make a shift from being a bit of a nihilist, I would say, mm. and not really seeing the point of anything, to actually having uh, a passion and vigour for life. So you mentioned there that through the passion and vigour at the end of his life, that he, he, I guess, finds Merceau is able to, to become something more than a nihilist. Obviously, at the end of the novel, this whole confrontation with the chaplain, that's kind of, I think, the crescendo of The Stranger, at least for me. Yes. What, what is it that's really going on there? I just want to press you a little bit on you talk about Merceau finding this passion, this vigour, and essentially what he's meant to be embodying here is um, an illustration of Camus' response to the absurd. Right. Um, for anyone who's listening and wants to be able to find a way of tackling the absurd themselves, what is it that, that Merceau's really found here? So what, what the chaplain is symbolising when he's trying to convert Merceau to God and to find God is what he's doing is he's dangling hope in front of Merceau like a carrot in yeah. front of a horse, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what Camus warns uh, warns us not to do, basically. Yeah. And that's to exercise hope when dealing with the absurd. Because if we exercise hope, ultimately we're, we're eluding the absurd. We're hoping for something better when we should just be making the best of a bad situation. So what that means is if, if we do hope for something better... We're not being lucid of our struggle anymore. We're, we're avoiding it. And if we're avoiding the struggle, we can't deal with it head on and become the master of it, as he says in The Myth of Sisyphus. I just wanted to jump in here quickly, just to add a quick interjection about just what's going on here in this confrontation between Merceau and the chaplain. For anyone who hasn't read the book, The Outsider, as I say, this really is the crescendo of the book. It's where Merceau most concretely embodies this notion of revolt that Camus talks about. But to add a bit of context, the way in which the chaplain is, as Liam says, dangling hope like a carrot on a stick in front of Merceau, is that of course by this point Merceau has been sentenced to death. So the chaplain comes to visit during Merceau's last days to help him find God, as it were. Now, in this situation, Merceau is facing a kind of absurd reality, in the sense that he, as a man, has a a will to live, a passion for life. And you've got this then absurd contradiction between this passion for life and his impending execution that he can do nothing about. 
So Masseau's facing this kind of absurd contradiction, but the role of the chaplain here is to offer Masseau hope. Hope in the face of the absurd that there is something there beyond death, that death isn't just the end of him. But this kind of hope is exactly what Camus wants us to avoid. Camus doesn't want us to commit philosophical suicide, to adopt, in this case, a religious belief merely to avoid having to confront the absurd. Camus wants us to look the absurd in the eye and revolt, to carry on in spite of it. And that's exactly what Masseau does. So having made that point, we'll go back to the discussion. We did kind of look at this earlier, though, in that when, when one is tackling this head-on, um, particularly when confronted something with, like imminent death, as Masseau is in the novel, um, I mean, I mentioned my kind of dissatisfaction about the line, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if one must imagine we're so happy. Obviously, you were talking earlier about we're not looking at happiness here in terms of that subjective feeling. It's something more long-lasting, um, yeah. more concrete in our life. But, I mean, how, how do you understand Merceau's, um response to the absurd here, his response to the chaplain in relation to, well, his happiness? And is, is this actually something that he's going to find fulfilling, this response? Or is it just a really bleak way to approach death? Um, no, I, th- I, think, I think the way he approaches it is quite admirable because in, in rejecting God and saying, I have no time for God, what he's, what he's ultimately saying, in my opinion, is like, hey, I lived my life how I wanted to live it. It might not have been an acceptable way for most people, but I, I was the master of my own struggles. There was, some, there was some agency and individuality to what I did. And there's a very interesting quote at the very end when Masseau's on his way to his execution. Uh, in the closing statement of the book, he says that he could only hope there would be many, many spectators on the day of my execution and that they would greet me with cries of hatred. And yeah. what that statement is to me, it's, it's an affirmation of his newfound passion and vigour for life, as we said, um, and what is needed to truly become an individual that lives an authentic life in this world. So in hoping for cries of hatred at his funeral, what Masseau, at his execution, sorry, what Masseau is basically saying is that in order to become an individual that is true to himself and lives an authentic life and becomes the master of his own struggles, one must defy certain norms and conventions that society holds dear, such as he did, when he met his mother's death with indifference, went went swimming, as the lawyer put it, started a casual affair and went to see a comedy. People might react with disgust and hatred to that, but that, in turn, is an affirmation of the absurd hero's own individuality. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting perspective, actually, because I'd personally struggled with that line, actually, about how he wanted to be met with cries of hatred at his oh, death. But yeah, that's okay. like, yeah, an interesting way of putting it, in that being met with cries of hatred at his at his death, at his execution, that, if I'm understanding you correctly then, that is representative of the fact that he has been authentic with his life because he has lived it in a way that's authentic to him and not just how everybody's telling him to live. Yeah, exactly. That's him saying, well, I must have done something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so on that note, actually, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on whether you find the way that Merceau is written to be well, uh, I guess a role model, uh, so a way that Camus thinks we should actually live our life. I think Masseau is described as an absurd hero, yes. but is he just an embodiment of this philosophical notion of the absurd, or is this actually like a blueprint of how we should be living our lives? I think I think a bit of both. I think he doesn't truly become an absurd hero towards the end when he does adopt this 
when he when he realizes this passion for life. Yeah. At the beginning, he seems to be more of an embodiment of the absurd. And one uh, one line that I that was really telling for me, and I enjoy about the show, it's when he's having a conversation with the examining judge about his impending trial, and he tells the judge, like, oh, I, I lost the habit of analysing my own emotions a while ago. So he embodies the absurd to such an extent where not only does he not try to unify and uh, make sense of the world around him, but he stops trying to do that with the world inside of him as well. Okay. And it really comes across in the narrative because, as we've said, it's written from his perspective. And the way Camus writes Mousseau, he offers very little in the way of emotional description and detail. Yeah. There, there are very few instances, if any, where Mousseau said, you know, this this made me sad, this made me happy. It's all written from a very immediate, sensual perspective. Yeah. There's very little in the way of actual um, yeah, emotional analysis, as, as he puts it. And in fact, uh, I find that a lot of the emotional stuff that Masseau goes through is more represented through pathetic fallacy, like um, you have the recurring motif, the blazing sun, yeah. that kind of represents in my opinion, man's struggle in the face of the absurd. Okay. So, yeah, I think he definitely embodies the absurd in that in that respect, in that he he just is. He doesn't try to make sense of things, but he he continues nonetheless. Exactly. Uh, what, I, what I might think some readers or some listeners might want to pose as an objection, though, is that he is living his life, even if it is an embodiment of the, of the absurd, in a way that just seems really distasteful. Um, obviously, <laughs> to the people... The people in the novel, like the judge, who are condemning him for the way he lives, but also, yeah. I mean, to to yourself, reading to say my mother died today or was it yesterday, to be not caring at her funeral, to be sleeping yeah. with somebody you've just met the next day, it doesn't seem like a way that it doesn't seem like a compelling um, blueprint to how we should be living our lives. Yeah, no, and I I agree. I think at first he's definitely not a role model for us, and we see that. His, his sort of nihilistic indifference actually leads him to indirectly hurt some people. Yeah. Like, he agrees to help this man at his apartment, Raymond, yeah. who is a pimp, write a letter to his ex-girlfriend, and ultimately uh, that's used to lure this girl back to Raymond, who then beats her within an yeah. inch of her life. Mm. So we see that his, his indifference towards life and his lack of principles actually leads him to do some things that are harmful as well. I see. But I guess, is it the revolt at the end? You mentioned Masso only becomes the absurd hero yes. in that end, end scene where he gets that passion vigour for life. Is it then that we actually start to see what the absurd hero is supposed to look like? Exactly, yeah. I think, I think it's only in the second half of the book that he really comes into his own as an absurd hero. Um, obviously you have you have his refusal to exercise hope in the face of death in the confrontation with the chaplain and then you also have uh, another thing I found quite telling was when he went when when he was in prison basically and um, he said you know I didn't enjoy it at first but after a while you can you can adapt to prison you can basically yeah. entertain yourself and he tells us about like how he would just entertain himself by um, trying to remember all of the things in his apartment and he said after a while he got so good at this that he was able to literally do it for hours on end and that is literally the embodiment of Camus' attitude of revolt and making the best of a bad situation and becoming the master of your own struggle there like even in prison he finds a way to entertain himself like that kid on the naughty step that you spoke about yeah 
Um, so yeah, I think that's that's another example of him being a role model as an absurd hero to the reader. Yeah, no, that I mean that sounds absolutely compelling. I guess you think then that this forms quite a close analogy with the myth of Sisyphus itself. Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure, yeah. It's like the embodiment of it. Exactly. Obviously, uh, we we think of Masso as uh, as an absurd hero um, through his um, refusal to exercise hope in the face of death, and um, in terms of just like general thoughts, not only on the outsider, but the myth of Sisyphus too, and just Camus' general philosophy um, on the absurd. Um, do you adopt as strict an attitude as Camus does in dealing with the absurd or do you think that sometimes it's actually okay to exercise a bit of hope and that it's it's necessary sometimes okay well if we're talking about strictly Camus response to the absurd my personal thought would be that I think we do have to be strict um, with regarding our lack of hope because until we do find certainty about there being some kind of higher meaning or purpose out there, I don't think it would be authentic to, to well, to, well, certainly to be believing in more, but also to be hoping for more. I think we should just be accepting it for what it, for what it is, for what the world is, and trying to do with it what we can. Where I might depart from Camus is, I think, his reluctance to create a certain sense of meaning or purpose, which, from my personal understanding, is where he departs from someone like Sartre. Yes. I think, I mean... I. As we've spoken about, Camus really doesn't want to describe himself as an existentialist. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think he's got reason to do so, because as I say, Ka- Ka- um, Sartre is all about, let's create our own sense of meaning. We have, Sartre really emphasises the freedom that we have in the face of something like the absurd, in the face of meaninglessness. We have the freedom to create from with the world whatever we can. Obviously, you spoke about, with Camus' response to the absurd, we can still live a fulfilling life. But Camus doesn't emphasise the freedom that we have to actually create a sense of meaning. I don't think Camus would really be so happy with that. And for me, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as we do keep in mind um, the lucidity of the absurd, we realise that our sense of meaning is contrived, is constructed. I think we can kind of create a sense of purpose. Although, I'm not sure from the, from the understanding you had of Camus, that you personally spoke about earlier, whether you think that Camus would even have a problem with creating that sense of purpose if we do retain the lucidity of the absurd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as, as I did say, I think in a way it does come down to semantics. Like, he might disagree with you creating meaning, but he definitely wouldn't disagree um, that a good way to live your life is by doing things that you enjoy and find meaningful. There's, there's a bit of a difference there. How so? So, but yeah, no, so I would say there's a distinction between creating meaning and doing things that are meaningful. Because if you do things that are meaningful, you're, you're doing things that you personally find enjoyable and fulfilling. But at the end of the day, you're not, you're not ascribing uh, some kind of higher meaning and purpose to life. So you can do things that are meaningful while still keeping. Um, the absurd in mind basically you can still be lucid of the absurd struggle yeah so to direct the question back to yourself then Liam what aspects of Camus do you personally find speak to you and you find compelling or are there any areas where you might want to depart from Camus train of thought I pretty much agree with like almost everything that he says really um, in terms of being lucid of your struggle not forgetting that um, making the best of a bad situation because in in doing that, 
Um, it's quite it's quite a simple take home, but in in making the best of a bad situation, becoming the master of your own struggle, you're showing yourself that you have the strength to continue and the strength to go on. Um, so it's it's ultimately a matter of self perception, really. Be the role model that you want to be for yourself, basically. And I don't think there's really many areas that I I depart from his his philosophy and his ideas. Obviously the the way that I apply them is individual to myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's nothing in his philosophy that he explores in the myth of Sisyphus that I really disagree with, to be honest. No, good stuff. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast, Liam. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks to everybody who's given this first guest episode of Searching For It a listen. You can find Searching For It on Facebook and Instagram, and I'd be really interested to hear from anyone who has any thoughts or feedback on this episode and how you found this discussion format. As ever, if you're interested in supporting the show, you can pledge your support to Searching For It on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Or alternatively, it's always a massive help to those of you who are able to leave a rating and a review on your podcast app of choice. The next episode will be landing on the first Monday of November on the 4th, where we'll be going into a lot more detail about Jean-Paul Sartre's take on existentialism and freedom. I've got through all the reading now, and hopefully my thoughts will be a bit more concrete than the references I made to Sartre at the end of this episode. But until then, thanks for listening.